Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Having spent years creating content that was widely consumed for free, it's finally dawned on me that my content and my time has a value. The Shift's fans are a supportive bunch, and many of you have asked how you can support the podcast further. Well, now you have the opportunity to do just that. You can go to steady.media forward slash the shift and become a member of the shift. In return for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive newsletters, community membership and other perks aimed at bringing us closer together. That's steady.media forward slash the shift. Hello and welcome to The Shift the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. My guest this week is the award-winning journalist Chitra Ramaswamy. And lucky me, Chitra lives in Edinburgh. So before I go any further, let me revel in the joy that was recording this episode in real life. I know. Anyway, back to Chitra. Her first book, Expecting... The Inner Life of Pregnancy, was garlanded with praise and won the Saltar First Book Award. Her new memoir comes social history, Homelands, is the moving story of a most unlikely friendship between Chitra, who was born in London in the 1970s to Indian immigrant parents, and Henry Wuger, a 98-year-old Jewish refugee who fled Nazi Germany in 1939. He's got a really strong German-Jewish accent. I've got a London accent. We both feel like we're Glaswegians. So, you know, these are the things that you start to connect on. Sitting in Chitra's kitchen with her rescue dog Daphne, who you will hear snoring, amongst other things, in the background as we chat, we discuss the importance of finding commonalities, learning to talk about shame, living with a mother-shaped hole, and what her friendship with Henry taught her about a talent for happiness, and why she hopes she'll age eccentrically. Well, firstly, I'm here in Chitra's kitchen. I love being in a kitchen. It makes me so happy being in a kitchen and not being on a screen. Daphne, the dog's in the corner. If you hear any strange noises, we'll just blame them all on Daphne. <laughs> Sorry, Daphne. Thank you for having me. Tell me how Henry, who was basically a journalistic assignment, how that turned into a decades-long friendship. Okay, well, thank you for coming, first of all, uh, and sitting in my kitchen and uh, complimenting my dog. It's already going very well. I couldn't be happier. Couldn't be happier to be in a kitchen with a dog and a coffee. So, yeah, I first met Henry Wuger just over 10 years ago now, in the summer of 2011. And I was a journalist at the time. I was working for the Scotsman. And it was just, you know, your average weekly assignment. It was coming up to Refugee Week. And so I was sent across the central belt to Glasgow, um, to Gifnock, which is just south of the city, to interview this Jewish couple in their 80s 
Louise, who had come to the UK on the kinder transport. And I probably at that time didn't even really know what the kinder transport was. And actually having written a book about Henry Wooger now, it's amazing to me how many people still don't know what the kinder transport is. So for those who don't know, it was a rescue mission that was basically set up in the last nine months leading up to the Second World War by both individuals and organisations in Britain. And they came together and they sort of made a last minute decision to try and save the lives of some of Europe's Jewish children. And Henry and Ingrid were two of those children. And there are about 10,000 of them and almost all of them never ended up going back. So they came, they stayed with foster families. And Henry and Ingrid were two of these children, children now in their 80s. And um, I spent the afternoon with them in Gifnick. And I never become friends with the people I interview because it's quite a formal relationship, isn't it, between journalist and subject. By rights, it should be. But I think once in a while, those boundaries somehow, it seems appropriate to, to cross them. And that's what happened with uh, with Henry and Ingrid. It actually all came from them. I remember I literally walked out of their flat. They've got this amazing flat, mid-century flat, filled with kind of beautiful mid-century furniture and a 1960s tea trolley that they used to use when they were kosher caterers in Glasgow and photos of the family all over the wall and a vintage map of Nuremberg in the hall, um, which is where Henry grew up in Nuremberg. And um, they were so kind and so elegant and so warm and I just absolutely fell in love with them. And then Henry invited me back to lunch and I felt very special until I discovered he'd also invited the photographer. The photographer's <laughs> wife for lunch as well and then I realized that's just what the Wuggers do that's just what he's like yeah Yeah. exactly um but anyway I did go for lunch and that lunch turned into you know so many more lunches and we used to meet you know all over the place in Edinburgh at the festival or in the East Nuke of Fife I took my son you know five days after he was born to visit the Wuggers and they just slowly in that way that friendships develop started to become part of my life and eventually I, I continue to write about them as well as a journalist but you know here and there I wrote about them for the Guardian quite a bit and then I just started to amass all these transcripts you know tens of thousands of words of transcript and um, at the time an editor approached me and said you know what are you thinking of working on for your second book and I came up with this kind of idea of a book of immigrant stories Um, and I thought one chapter of this book would be about Henry and Ingrid another chapter might be about my family Mm. and then I thought it would almost be like a book of travel writing And I would, you know, maybe go to the Isle of Bute and meet a Syrian family. And it was an interesting idea, but it was it was weird. It was like I needed to grant myself permission to just write about Henry Wooger. And that was almost like a step on the journey to allowing myself to do that. It feels like having read it, Henry wouldn't allow himself to be contained in one chapter. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because his story and his stories, they're also amazing. Um, and at the time and as continues you know the way that we talk about refugees is so one-dimensional often derogatory um, negative and also we tend to define them so much by the journey itself Mm. and their identity as refugees and of course it's you know, completely central to Henry's identity that he's a Jewish refugee it's definitive However, it's just one aspect of his life. And so I really want, I wanted the space and time 
to write a really sort of humane and full book about Henry and to treat him as a refugee with that kind of dignity that he that he deserves. You said that at the beginning you were thinking about doing one chapter on you, one chapter on him, and then going off and finding other stories. But at what point did you decide, because one of the things that's really moving about Homelands, I mean, in a way, Henry's story on its own would be a book, but what makes it especially moving is the cross-generationalness of it and the way that your story weaved through. Did that just happen? Was that How did that make itself known, I suppose? Yeah, so... Right from the get-go, I knew that I didn't want to write a conventional biography of Henry Wooger, what I think of as a kind of, you know, a man's history of Henry Wooger's life. Because, well, there's loads of reasons why, but I'm not Jewish. I don't share any background or heritage with Henry, so there would be no sense of, you know, going to stand at 15 Furtestrasse in Nuremberg, at the door where he grew up and kind of you know, there with my notebook and and pen, smelling the smells and taking in the history and looking at my own history in relation to it. That just wasn't the story. Um, Mm. The story seemed to me to be about our friendship. And I did did worry about my lack of sort of historical connection to Henry, my right, Mm. my right to tell the story. And, you know, there's a lot of that going on in publishing now, mm. this sort of interrogation about who can say what and who can, which stories are we allowed to tell and should we be telling. And I think that's really healthy. I mean, we should interrogate why we're telling someone else's story, and especially as a journalist, and especially if you're going to attempt to write a biography. So it had to be about our connection and about the sort of space between us. And the amazing thing is, when I started, I thought the really big story, the sort of charm of our story was about, you know, the man in his 80s and 90s, the white, European, um, Mm. assimilated German-Jewish refugee in his 80s and 90s versus you know the daughter of immigrants who is a Londoner and who is just so utterly different from him in every way and then through the course of writing it by the end of it I realized all the reasons why there was the common ground between us Mm. and actually it makes perfect sense to me why Henry and I are friends now we're more alike than we're different, funnily enough, in terms of our sort of perspective and, and the sort of historical bridges between us. They'd been invisible to me until I started writing about it. So, so yeah, it's a very unconventional biography that almost, you know, it dovetails with memoir. And it's my story and his story. One of the things that really struck me when I was reading it is you could scarcely be more different on the face of it, but what comes through all the way, despite the kind of... 50-year-plus age gap and all the different life experience is all the commonalities. I'm finding at the moment really depressing all the stuff that's being made of, like, the generational divide and the boomers versus millennials versus Gen Z. And actually, one of the things I find on this podcast is the conversations I like, not the most, but really enjoy, are the ones with very, very much older women. And I think that kind of what you can find that you have in common but also what you can learn just by talking to people with such different experience and you, I think you've hit the nail on the head and that's exactly that's exactly how I felt you know it flies in the face of the sort of the deep polarisation of the times which I'm not I'm not saying that isn't true 
these are really divided times, you know, just look at Brexit, look at everything that's going on, both at the sort of macro and, and the micro levels. But at the same time, friendships are struck up across divides all the time. And actually another massive influence. You know, the reality is people make bridges towards each other all the time, whether it's, you know, um, a neighbour on the street or a family connection or... And I don't think that's getting talked about and it's more important than ever. And I read this amazing piece that the German Jewish writer Hannah Arendt, who like Henry, was interned um, during the Second World War. I read a piece that she wrote about actually, in fact, I put a quote right at the start of the book from this amazing piece of writing. And the quote is, the world lies between people. It's, It's such a beautiful sentiment. And in this piece, she talks about how In actual fact, in times of deep crisis and polarisation, the most unlikely unions happen because suddenly all of the old divisions in terms of class, in terms of race, in terms of ethnicity, heritage, all the things that Henry and I are really, you know, very, very different um, along those lines, suddenly they, they melt, they evaporate. And what you're left with is, do we share values? Do we share Mm. perspective? Do we like the same music? Do we both like walking in the hills at the weekend? Yeah, we do, actually. Is Glasgow your favourite city in the world? Mine too. And these are the Mm. things that start to matter. And actually, both Henry and I, if you were to... He's got a really strong German-Jewish accent, um, a strong German accent. I've got a London accent. We both feel like we're Glaswegians. So, you know, these are the things that you start to connect on. Yeah, it's like, it's like, do you look at the world with the same eyes? Yeah. To a certain extent. And you don't have to both be 90 or both be 18 to have that perspective. Exactly. It's like, you know, Madonna, I love Madonna. Um, You know, Madonna, like, once said something about, you know, inside her is like a gay man screaming to get out or something. Yeah. it's like a famous Madonna quote from yeah. like the 80s or whatever. You know, inside me, it turns out, is this 98-year-old <laughs> German Jewish refugee in a bow tie <laughs> and a beautiful suit. Yeah. Um, I love I love that. And, and, you know, the thing is, I'm a... Daphne. It's okay, Daphne. She's not going anywhere. Go downstairs. Um, I'm the daughter of first-generation immigrants as well, oh, so no. that means that I don't know my... and didn't know my grandparents. So I haven't had that kind of cross-generational, you know, going over to Granny for a cup of tea or anything like that. They were strangers to me. And when I did see them, it was kind of, it was frightening because there was all this gulf of um, understanding, you know. We didn't speak the same language and often we were all just crying because it was so emotional and we didn't really know what to do with ourselves. So for a child, that was completely overwhelming. So were you, you write about going... To see them, were you tiny the last time you saw them when you went to Bangalore? To not tiny, we went a lot when uh, we were children. This is when I say we, I mean me and my sister with my mum and dad. We used to go really regularly. Then we kind of stopped going for all sorts of reasons, financial and personal. And so then we didn't go for I think it was like 
20 years for us and 10 years for my mum or something like that. So there was a massive gap. Mm. So it's almost like we went as children and when we went back, we were grown up. Um, so you were in a way, you were subconsciously adopting some grandparents. I think there was that element. I often felt that. You know, I think there are children like that because I grew up in a very sort of white middle class area of, of London. It was it Richmond? Richmond, yeah. yeah. And... Yeah, really posh. So lucky to grow up there. It was amazing. Then our house got repossessed and it all went completely wrong. But until that happened, it was this most kind of idyllic and sunlit childhood. It was perfect. And and so all my friends were white and middle class and had beautiful, you know, pianos in the bay windows and all that sort of thing. And um, I do remember often wanting to kind of be adopted by other families yeah. and wanting to go and like, live with other families all the time. I loved my own. I also had a very good family of my own. But I think you do get children like that that sort of inveigle their way into yeah. other families. I think it's also, it's like, were you a big reader? Because I do think yes. there's this, oh, I'm definitely adopted. You yeah, go through yeah. that phase when you're about seven or eight going, you know, well... I'm the only ginger, so I'm definitely adopted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was it at the time you were writing the book that your mum got ill and then died? It was, it was. And the book took me a very long time to write, years, in fact. Obviously, I met Henry in 2011, and in some ways I feel, you know, uh, I was writing the book from then on, but actively writing it from about 2018. And... I knew that I wanted to write it in quite a kind of present way. I was very inspired by Deborah Levy, um, oh, yeah. the, that, that idea of living autobiography. Yeah, I love that. So everything yeah. that's happening is all relevant. Virginia Woolf wrote a lot like that as well. You know, it's those details that really speak to you, and especially when women's stories are so underwritten. I think it's, re- I think it's a powerful and radical way to write and live. So yeah, I knew therefore, because my mum at the time had breast cancer and it was incurable, as in it had gone away and that was amazing and then it came back. And so I did know while I was writing the book that it was highly likely that she was going to die while I was writing the book and that I was writing a kind of living autobiography and so somehow this was going to be a part of the book's world. And also Henry and Ingrid were in their 90s. So I knew it was also possible that Henry and Ingrid might die while I was writing the book. And indeed, Ingrid did die Mm. while I was writing the book. Um, She died four months after my mum. So this book was going to be absolutely permeated by grief and death and loss. And what I didn't know was that all of this was going to happen in a... You were talking about Virginia Woolf and uh, writing women's stories. What was it that made you write Henry's story, not Ingrid's? Oh, what a good question. Uh, That's a brilliant question. I think partly because the connection that I made was with Henry at a level of personality. And also, if you were to meet Henry and Ingrid, which sadly is no longer possible because Ingrid died, however, you'd be struck immediately by his charisma and he, he loves talking to the press. He's quite, um, he's quite a vivacious man. And Ingrid is by no means shy. I can't bear to talk about her in the past tense. I do the same with my mum. I talk about her if she's alive. It's a pretense and sometimes it's one that's really hurtful. 
like I can hurt myself talking about my mum as if she's alive and also it's probably not always that healthy but it's so lovely to trick yourself that somebody who's dead is actually still here anyway by the by um, it's not by the by no none of it's by the by is it <laughs> no um but Ingrid she was very mischievous and very sweet and I could easily have told her story which was just as fascinating as Henry's and so different but he definitely was the one that wanted to speak to journalists, do you know? Mm. And the other thing about Ingrid is within probably about five or six years of meeting them, she was diagnosed with vascular dementia. I continued mm. to interview her, though, which was a really interesting process um, because, you know, with, with dementia, often the deep memory is better than the present yeah. memory. So we would have these amazing conversations where, you know, she would be saying to Henry, why are we here? Why am I here? Why is she asking me these questions? And then the next minute, she'd be telling me all about what happened in Dortmund when she was a little girl. Um, so it's really mm. interesting. And of course, one of the central themes of the book is about memory, both at the kind of collective level of you know, the idea of never forget in terms of the Holocaust and the, the sense of Holocaust denial that we are forgetting and in some cases um, deliberately so. But also other ideas of memory, you know, what we all remember from our own pasts and what Ingrid was losing in terms of her dementia. So that's also why I, I wouldn't have told Ingrid's story. And I had to make decisions how to tell her story in a way that was respectful considering mm. her dementia and in many ways it was often Henry and and then Henry and Ingrid's two daughters who were kind of consenting for right her. yeah yeah um to go back to your mum your mum mm. does comes across such an amazing woman oh she really is it was and is there's a list towards the end of the book of words that describe her mm. the things that I really loved that leapt out were Dr Gardner Cook <laughs> yeah yeah. How much of that about her influenced you? You know, I think sometimes the tragedy, well, one of the tragedies of losing a parent, but in particular a really good parent, for those of us who are lucky enough to have had good parents, is it's only after they're gone. Because there's something about good parenting. It's quite invisible. You don't notice mm. it a lot of the time. Just a very sweet, invisible daily good parenting which in my mum's case was often parenting by absence um, my mum never phoned me <laughs> it drove me mad it drove me mad well, once she know, left home she was yeah, yeah exactly she was like the opposite of the kind of bossy um nosy you know stereotype of the indian mother yeah um, and I was looking for a bit more of that stereotype. Yeah, yeah. I was like, gonna pick Give up me the more attention. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why aren't you constantly saying what what are you doing? Sometimes I felt that as a kind of neglect. You know, like does she not care? And it was only after she died that I realised she just had complete faith in me. You know. Yeah. She had complete faith in me, and she didn't need to check up on me. She just let me free and let me go about the world. And Such whenever a skill, I came back, isn't it? she was just like, "I'm so happy to see you, and I've cooked all your favourite food." And you know, yeah, it's just like really sweet parenting. So yeah, I think in some ways I've only realised how much she's influenced me and what a kind of towering figure she has been since she died and I, I find that so 
devastating, really, that I can't tell her, you know? Mm, it's yeah. like that thing, isn't it, on Twitter when someone dies and there's a massive outpouring and you just think, I wonder if that person had any idea. Yeah. The lovely things people say about people after they've died. Yeah. And I know yeah. we do we do sort of deify people, don't we, when they yeah. die. And, yeah. And, and I'm sure I've done that to a certain... Daphne's back. <laughs> to a certain extent. But at the same time, I think... There's something so sweet about reassessing maybe all of their flaws and applying kind of compassion and understanding that you maybe didn't do when they were alive. I find that really touching and kind of awful, but also lovely. And, you know, it's funny, isn't it? When people experience grief and they say things like, you know, tell the people that you love them, that you love them while you can, mm. because then, you, you know, you won't be able to. But that's just not how we live, is it? No. I mean, I don't. I know that my, you know, my dad's going to die, but I'm not phoning him up telling him I love him. No. <laughs> also, he'd probably think you were really weird if you did. <laughs> he would. He would. But um. And maybe my dad I will, would be actually. like, "Do you want to talk to your mum?" Should we call him? Now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we could do it. See what happens. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Hang up. He <laughs> has a really lovely phrase, which you use which refers to your mother but also to the wider concept of the motherland and all that was a mother-shaped hole Mm -hmm. which is absolutely lovely where did that kind of come from for you this has been such a massive you know thing for me since my mum died I didn't expect because I'm you know I'm 43 Daphne it's cool they're not going anywhere she does like to cry a lot. Yeah, I didn't expect to feel quite so um, lost. I've been very interested in how much like a child it's made me feel again. Grief and losing my mum, losing the mum in particular, or losing my mum. I can't speak for anyone else. Um, but I only know that it's sort of turned me into a little girl, like looking for her mummy all the time. That's really interesting. Yeah, and... My brain is still, this has been two years now, is still struggling to understand that I'm not going to find her. And you know, Mm. it's like you're in Woolworths, and (laughs) betraying my age, you're in Woolworths and you've lost your mum and you're running around looking for her. This actually happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) And many, many other children of my generation. (laughs) And you're in a panic and you can't find her. And then all of a sudden, you know, a stranger takes you back to her and you're like, oh, the relief, there mm. she is. I'm still waiting for that, um, but I now realise I'll be waiting for that f- forever. So yeah, that's the mother-shaped hole. Um, and I think it is possibly particular to the loss of a mother because of that first nurturing that we get, you know, at the mother's or the primary carer's breast or body. However, I think... It probably is particular to having a good mother as well, maybe, that feeling. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do you think it's also in any way connected to, you use another brilliant phrase, the bewilderness? looking for kind of the search for belonging do you think those two things are tied a bit yeah they do feel the same at the level of kind of feeling they do feel quite similar except the the mother hole the mother shaped hole is much bigger but perhaps because i'm only two years into Mm. this journey of loss whereas the search for belonging is just this kind of i don't know i think the thing is for younger people i don't know i really notice this when i see sort of, you know, black and brown women or men, you know, in their 20s, talking about, you know, race and identity and belonging and the search and the bewilderness. I'm just amazed by their articulacy and their Mm. ability to open their mouths and for actual words to come out. Mm. Because, you know, when I grew up, we didn't talk about these things at all. And that silence, has a massive influence on one whatever the subject might be in my case it was definitely race and because I grew up in a very white middle class area you don't talk about race in those places so it's this kind of invisible force and so everything gets internalized as shame really and so I find it you know I love talking I, I, I'm able to string sentences together until it comes to that and then I really struggle to know how to even open my mouth, to be perfectly honest. Um, so this book was an attempt to write some of the things that I still have no idea how to say. You succeeded in putting them on the page, even if you, you can't really... <laughs> That's what that bewilderness feels like. It feels like being muted, not being able to speak. It's so interesting that you say that about the articulacy of young black and brown people and it's a thing that I've really felt in relation to younger women in general their ability to put into words or speak up or not just grit their teeth and smile through all the things that I mean I'm 10 years older than you the things that you just thought that you had to put up with or internalize or or smile you're so right my I'm amazed at how much my default response is laughter. Yeah. It's a kind of open mouth, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. When I'm absolutely dying inside. But I don't even know that I'm dying inside until later when I can't sleep that night and I'm going, oh, my God, why was I laughing? Yeah, why did I just go along with that? Yeah. Why did I, yeah. you know? Yeah. Do you feel like you've done it with regards to your gender as well as your race? Not at all, actually. Um, It's a completely particular thing to my race and my identity as the daughter of immigrants, that feeling and that, that sort of tussle. My sexuality is just totally by the by interesting to me <laughs> yeah. um and I don't know why that is you know I you know I think it's maybe something to do with the fact that because I think for so many people their sexuality is absolutely integral and mm. I completely respect that for my partner who is a lesbian I think her identity as a lesbian well I shouldn't really speak on her behalf but I think if I were to <laughs> and I will <laughs> yeah. well, damn it, um is integral 
But for me, you know, I went out with men, saw myself as straight, quite frankly. In other words, didn't think about it at all, because you don't tend to when you're in a majority <laughs> identity. You just you just kind of blithely live your life. Yeah, because you're normal. Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, I met Claire and we got together and I thought, oh, well, I think I'm probably bisexual then. And I've just kind of stuck with that, really. So it just hasn't hasn't been the massive, lifelong, defining part of me in the way that the colour of my skin is. Not just the colour of my skin, but my background, my race. Have you seen a change in your attitude? Not, I don't want to go like, since you turned 40, because <laughs> it's like 40 isn't some kind of switch that clicks. Is it not? I think it is. You think it is? I think That's it really be. interesting. I swear I heard the switch. Really? What changed? <laughs> well... For a start, I had this amazing party on my 40th. Oh, right, that's always, yeah. You know, like, you know when you decide you're going to throw a party, like a proper party, and, you know, I've got so much champagne, and a friend of mine who's got a really beautiful flat in Leith said, you can have it here, and so it was in someone else's flat. Oh, great, just, yeah, even exactly. better. You haven't got clear up tomorrow. And it just so happened, I was 40, I had my two children, which, you know, I was just like, felt so fortunate to have these two beautiful children. My son had recently been diagnosed as autistic, mm-hmm. and I was starting to feel really comfortable about where we were on that journey. My daughter was just like the most perfect, cheerful, beautiful baby. So I was just filled with kind of, you know, the glow and the check out my baby vibes. And uh, my mum was, you know, living with incurable cancer. And we were getting, you know, scans where there was great news in that time. The treatment's working. We've bought more time, you know. Mm. People see it as a kind of downward slump, um, a terminal or incurable cancer diagnosis. But there are moments of absolutely massive joyous highs where you're like, we've got more time, or she's doing really well, or this treatment's working, or, you know, it's amazing. Mm. And that was a really good time. My sister came up, and she had her two young children. I distinctly remember walking down that street there, towards the party saying to her life is so sweet you know got my I always wanted children I wanted to be a writer I've written my first book I'm working on another one our mum and dad we've still got both parents you know just was so amazing and then I just felt like after that everything you know we entered this kind of tunnel of terror (laughs) (laughs) where basically the pandemic happened my mum died in the midst of lockdown it was incredibly traumatic and upsetting everything just became so intense and there was a complete lack of control and life was just sort of unraveling in massive meaningful ways all around me my sister became really chronically ill with long covid and you know just stuff just stuff life stuff happened I don't think you can blame 40 for that. No, I can't blame 40, but I think what's funny, when when there are those sort of defining moments and there's life before and life after and they look quite different, it's very hard not... I'm such a kind of sentimental, nostalgic person anyway. Um, I look back on that, even though at the time I was full of complaints and life is this and life is that, I now look back on it as a kind of joyous 
wonderful time after which I kind of was plunged into the dark. <laughs> Cheery! It's kind of, no, yeah, no. it's like that front row of funeral <laughs> laughter, isn't it? It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like you talk in, in the book, you talk about the midlife gift of responsibility. Yeah, exactly. It's like there is a bit of that. That's one thing that's great about 50, because in a way you slightly get... I mean, you might still have parents and they might be ageing, but you do slightly get beyond that. I think yes. your 40s can be, yeah. sorry guys, anybody listening who's right in the middle of it, can be kind of mired in yeah. kids and yeah. debt and yeah. you know, yeah. it grief. Feels and... Exactly. It feels com- very compressed, you know, like you're under immense pressure. It's a pr- pressure particular to having very, very young children and very old, infirm parents at Mm. the same time. The combination of those two things. And then you add, you know, while my mum was dying, essentially, the last sort of 12 weeks of her life in London, um, and we were in in a national lockdown, so myself, Claire, and the children were here. And, of course, all the schools and everything were closed. So the children were here... And that seemed so just extraordinarily odd and frightening. And my mum was in London and she was very altered. So I was speaking to her on the phone every day, but she was not like herself at all. And it was really quite strange and disconcerting, but sometimes she would be like herself. So those phone calls were, I could write a book just about those phone calls. They were so amazing and surreal. And I just felt that so strongly. And in the midst of it, I was trying to write this book. Um, So it would literally be like, you know, having a phone conversation with my mom, with my children screaming and, you know, Mm -hmm. hitting the door and because all the schools have shut down. And and then, you know, and and my mom's dying and I'm trying to sort out carers. And and then like my editor's emailing and I'm trying to write a book. And, you know, you're just like, I can't really believe that this is all happening at the same time. We all have moments of abject crisis in our lives and in many ways I think I've been so lucky that actually it took a long time to come to me and yeah it's allowed me to sort of reflect back on those first decades which were by no means problem free by the way but they had a certain sweetness to them because no one had died yet. You talk about like the tyranny of the clock and I think that there's a a way around about this age that that starts to have so many different meanings it's like the literally there's not enough time to do all those things you've just described but also those enraging kind of 30 things you should have done by the time you're 30 list but by the time you're like 45 or 50 it's just like the list of the things that you haven't done on the list are they just it's huge yeah and I I find that I don't want to do any of them anymore no which is really interesting the list of things that I want to do now I can't tell is this my 40s is this the pandemic is this my mum's death is this having an autistic child or is it all of these things all together probably yes all of the above yeah. yeah exactly but I my my needs and wants and desires are so small and simple now I don't want to go anywhere for a start. I've got no interest in travelling. I haven't been abroad for nearly a decade. Wow, so that was, pre- yeah. that was pre-pandemic. That wasn't the pandemic. That's pre-pandemic, yeah, yeah. Um, that's very much a kind of decision, uh, you know, as my mum, because she was ill for a long time, every sort of holiday and bit of money went towards going to London to see her mm. and taking the kids to see her and things like that. So our holidays yeah, and that's started... that's not cheap, is it? 
it's really not. So our holidays started to be about going to London or being in Scotland. And also, because my son's autistic, he's eight now, the thought of planes and airports and things like that is just a bit like, why? Why? To go somewhere really hot where I can't lie on a beach and read a book all day because I've got two annoying little children. Why would I bother doing that? And I kind of look back on my, in my 20s, I used to do crazy things. Like I remember going to Cape Town for work for like 24 hours. You know, it's like unbelievable to me now. I just, yeah, I'm looking for a, a quiet, peaceful life, a life of appreciation rather than adventure in a way. How do you feel about ageing now? I mean, you're a whippersnapper anyway. (laughs) I feel fine. I feel like I just want to be, I feel, you know, healthy. I want to be healthy. I feel completely unwilling to get serious or deny myself pleasures. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I, you know, I'm as silly as I ever was and plan to get up to as much nonsense as possible for as long as possible. I think you've spent too much time with Henry Wooger. There's a really brilliant line, another one that I wrote down, where you're talking to Henry about being 97 and he says, I won't be 97, I'll be Henry Wooger. Yeah, I love that. so great, isn't it? That sense that I'm just me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that that really does describe him and, and that's been a huge influence on me. His kind of optimism... Um, which is really a kind of sense of perspective. He's got an amazing sense of perspective. Uh, I think that's one of the, the most sort of humbling things about Henry. And somebody described him to me as a man filled with empathy. And I think that's why he's able to be so happy. And I model my life now on those tracks because yeah that's what matters isn't it to fill your life with empathy both towards yourself and towards others so even about things like being interned you know he's like well I can understand it you know <laughs> I'm like Henry oh God. you were a 16 year old refugee yeah. um, and he's like yeah but you know the country was filled with you know paranoia and there was a war and you can understand it and you just think wow Wow, wow. Man. yeah. Yeah. What character. Yeah, it's amazing. It's very inspiring, isn't it? I once interviewed the writer Judith Kerr, and she described her father to me as having a talent for happiness. And that's always stayed with me, that phrase, because mm. I just think it's such a beautiful thing to say. And especially about her father, who was this man called Alfred Kerr, and he was a really famous Berlin critic and sort of a public intellectual who was very obviously spoke out a lot against the Nazis and that was why the family was pursued now to leave, flee the country. And actually, he survived. They, they did get away, but he did end up ending his life. So her father killed himself and she still described him as a man with a talent for happiness. And I just thought wow. that that was the most beautiful thing and also just really shows you the depth of hatred of the Nazis that they could make a man with a talent for happiness do that God. Um, yeah you know and I think Henry's a man with a talent for happiness as well and so is my dad and, and my mum and I hope I am too and it is about that kind of perspective isn't it yeah I like the way that you you said that you felt like it was inextricable from the refugee status yeah exactly 
Exactly. And not just the refugee status, but the immigrant status too. And I think I didn't really understand that until I met Henry. And and actually until I wrote this book, I was learning in real time as I wrote this book. There were revelations that came as I was writing the sentences. And one of them was that, that, you know, this idea of the sort of the talent for happiness, it's not natural, you know, born talent. It's created, it's manufactured by the self. Because I think when you leave your country and you go somewhere else, whether it's by choice or whether you're, you've been persecuted, in my parents' case, whether it's by invitation from a country that's colonised you, when you do that, you leave everything behind, you have to forge your identity all over again. And I think it requires huge amounts of optimism. Yeah, just to keep putting one foot in front of each other no matter what. Exactly. It's like, you know, it's... I was listening to this Asma Khan, who... Oh, I love she's her. She's incredible. Yeah, Have she's you seen amazing. her chef's table? Yeah, I love it's amazing, her. yeah. Um, anything food Check related, that out if you're listening. Mm. Yeah, it's brilliant. Well, she, you know, speaking of what we're just talking about, she, in a podcast that I listened to, was talking about, you know, the Bangladeshis who came and opened the curry houses in London in the 1960s and about how basically they invented a bunch of curries that were not really Indian at all um, because they were filled with cream because they thought the British, the white powder would approve of that. (laughs) Um, So they created all these strange curries that they thought white Oh, the dreaded korma. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, total yuck. And then, you know, they opened these restaurants. You know, they had no help. They had no money, nothing. It's so entrepreneurial, apart from anything else, isn't it? And then, you know, they had to deal with, like, daily horrific racism. All of their customers would run away without paying. Stones hurled through the restaurant by the same people who then are back in on Friday night ordering a curry and treating you like absolute shit. And you keep welcoming them in and saying, nice to see you, sir. And, you know, because that's your bread and butter and it's your job. And it's that. It's that forging of identity and the kind of strength of character and resolve that it takes. And it's so invisible as well. Nobody even knows that you're doing it or thinks to say, well, good for you, mate. Um, that you've done it. It's back to that being expected to smile and laugh politely, isn't it? Yeah, it it is. It is. And um, I'll tell you one thing about... I don't know if it's about getting older or... I guess it is getting older because it's like... It's being around for longer. (laughs) That's what getting older is. Existing longer. Is I just really don't give a shit anymore at all. I don't think I ever gave that much of a shit, to be honest. Um, But now I just feel like, you know... Again, it's back to Henry. You've just got to tell it like it is and speak your truth. And I think so much of my life, like the first sort of 30 years almost, no, the first 40 years maybe, I felt somehow that there was a lack of validity in my experience because I grew up in such a kind of white middle-class environment and I was not Indian enough or, you know, just didn't quite fit in anywhere, the perennial outsider and... By the way, I've increased that for myself by, on top of everything else, coming to live in Scotland. Yeah. Um, so I keep adding levels of kind of yes. displacement to my life. You know, I think once you keep doing that for 40 years, you start to realise there's something about it you must quite like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's definitely your thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think, so I've really arrived at a place where I'm like, I'm not searching for that anymore. The bewilderness itself has become the home. 
I'm no longer looking. I'm definitely searching for my dead mother, um, but I'm not searching for this kind of fantasy place that I'll belong in because I won't belong um, because I'm an outsider and they're my people and, um, and they're great people. That's brilliant. Right, I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask. Great. What's your emotional age? Oh, 26. Why 26? <laughs> I love this. Forever. I love this question Forever so 26. much. 26 because I'm in Glasgow. I've just met Claire. We are eating out about five nights a week. We've got ridiculous amounts of booze in the fridge. We go to gigs all the time. We're both journalists, so we're going to get free tickets to everything going. <laughs> and um, travelling back and forth to London all the time to do big interviews with people in Soho and life is about sort of freedom and horizons and fun and drinking and smoking and just brilliant and no 48 hour hangover yeah just and sort of hedonism i had a very hedonistic 20s and in my heart i'm still a very hedonistic person i'll always be the last to leave a party and i love people i'm so energized by hanging out with people and but i actually don't live that life anymore but in my head, I'm still living it all the yeah. time. I'm just on my own, listening to BBC Radio <laughs> 6, you know, turning the chicken dippers in the oven. Um, but my heart is, you know, at Optimo in Glasgow in the 90s. <laughs> Give me a book recommendation. It can be one that was, like, significant to you throughout your life, or it can just be a good book you read yesterday, whichever you like. So hard! It's like picking one is just ridiculous. Well, frankly. I think just... Because of, you know, the book that we've been talking about today, my, my book Homeland, I'm going to have to go with Austerlitz by W.G. Sebald. And it is pretty much the only really great novel written about a kinder transportee. Um, so obviously it was going to be a book that I read while writing and before writing this book. And um, I think I didn't really expect to be so absolutely fundamentally altered by it. But... Everything that we've been talking about today and more is in that book. It's just the most extraordinarily humane and sort of controlled. And it's one of those books where there's so much going on between the lines. Like so much is unsaid. And I just think that's so powerful. And I was massively influenced by that with this book. What can we say about the Holocaust, which is obviously the most unsayable of things? Because people talk about it so much in terms of an unthinkable, it's unconscionable. And of course, what they really mean is we can't bear to think about it. I don't want, yeah, I don't want to it's, think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find the response when people say, you know, when you say something really bad's happened, my mum died in lockdown and I barely got to see her, was for example, and people say, oh, I just can't imagine i find that so deeply irritating Mm. you know it's like you can imagine you just think my life's really scary so you don't want to imagine it oh i'm bloody living it yeah um so you know what you can imagine it yeah but what's really funny is when people say oh i can imagine i find that really annoying as well Bloody can't. It happened to you. I don't think you can. Because people, you know, people often just goes to show there's nothing that anyone can no. say. <laughs> Basically, don't don't yeah. 
Just don't refer to your imagination or lack of when you're big boy. Um, and I'm going to be angry with whatever you say. People often say that when I say, oh, my son's autistic. Oh, I can't imagine what that would be like. Or, oh, I can imagine that's really hard. And I find both of those responses quite irritating. Yeah, well, they are both stock responses, isn't yeah. it, really? It's yeah. a bit like you just got that out of the playbook for yeah. responding to yeah. a difficult thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what advice would you give younger women? Just go out and have bags of fun. Just seize your freedom and be kind to yourself. Uh, who's your old bird role model? <laughs> Ingrid Wooger. I feel like I should ask you who your old boy role model is, because <laughs> I think I know the answer. Yeah, Henry Wooger. <laughs> Definitely. What's your superpower? Genuinely not giving a shit what other people think. And it is a superpower, and... I don't quite know the moment at which I acquired it, but uh, I'm really grateful for it now. And well, Claire, my partner, tells me that I am getting more and more eccentric by the day. <laughs> and that, you know, I'm becoming full eccentric Richmond lady, crazy lady, and that makes me very happy. I can think of no higher compliment. Yeah, probably. exactly. Exactly. I'm like, mission accomplished. Yeah, if I get more eccentric <laughs> as I get older, then I will be very happy. I know. Well, that's it. What does eccentric really even mean? It just sort of means being less afraid to be yourself. I think that is exactly what it means. It yeah. means just, just being you. Yeah, exactly. And not tempering that around other people's expectations. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing is, because people have a lot of expectations as to what middle-aged Indian women might be like, I really enjoy subverting and upending and pissing all over all of them <laughs> and seeing their faces, you know, looking mildly shocked. It gives me a lot of pleasure. <laughs> you don't even need to answer the last question because you already have really, but I'll ask it anyway for symmetry. How many fucks do you give? None. <laughs> Not even fucking one. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Chitra. And thanks, Stephanie, for snoring. All the way through the last half an hour. I know. We've had some snoring. We've had some crying. Um, yeah. This dog, by the way, you know, if anyone was to ask me what got you through grief more than anything else, it would definitely be this dog. Yeah. I have shed so many tears into that smelly brown flower. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take her to all the launches as I need my support. You should. With me. You definitely <laughs> should. <laughs> Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash the shift. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, fresh. 